The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we have drummer Bobby Z from Prince and the Revolution to talk about the expanded and remastered deluxe edition of Prince's breakthrough album, 1999. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. You know what? We're getting close to the holidays. And, well... That's right. That means that we have a little more time on our hands. And guess what I'm going to do with my time? What are you going to do? Rhino.com. Very simple. I know that's that's what you're going to do, too, because we're two of a kind when it comes to this. It's true. There is so much cool stuff at the end of the year. You know, a lot of great releases come out. And, of course, all of this stuff makes great gifts for uh, the music heads in your life. And there's some really cool stuff coming up. There's a Fleetwood Mac vinyl box set that has colored vinyl, different color for each release, from all the releases from 1975 to 1987. The new Van Halen Japanese 7-inch singles box set. It's all the David Lee Roth era stuff. Everything that came out in Japan, it's all the original packaging and sleeves. Very cool. That's out now. Why don't you tell them about uh, the one you just saw that you liked a lot? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, it's a choice, but I'm going to I'm going to go for the Stooges 50th anniversary super deluxe. I mean, not only do we have all of these John Cale mixes, but alternate versions of things like I want to be your dog and no fun and even the single versions. I mean, this is this is up my alley. Right on. Hey, all you synth pop fans out there are going to dig this. There's a new Depeche Mode box set. It's called Mode. It's a comprehensive collection of the band's work to date comprised of all 14 of their studio albums, plus additional non-album material. If you're a Depeche Mode fan, you're going to love it. This is the box set for you. So, Stocking stuffers for everyone, folks, at rhino.com. And, of course, for your daily musical education edification there is artist profiles with essays. You know, I just was looking at the Black Sabbath one because of that new Black Sabbath vinyl box that came out. I wanted to learn a little bit more about the albums I'm not familiar with. So, bam, there I went, educating myself. And, of course, sign up for Album of the Day because I love finding out about new music, and I know you do too, Dennis, and I know that you out there, all you listeners do, or else you wouldn't be listening to this. It's worthy, and it's free, and it's very cool, so check it out. As I like to say, rhino.com, it'll make you more popular at parties. Well, you know, and it is cocktail party season, is it not? I think so. Speaking of parties, today 
We are going to party like it's 1999, am I right? We are. It's the fifth studio album by that man known as Prince. It was originally released on October 27th, 1982. But this remaster, multiple versions of it, and we have a two-part podcast on this album and two amazing guests this week it is the one and only bobby z and by the way this was the first album featuring the revolution this super deluxe box set that's available now it's available as a 10 lp with a dvd or a 5 cd with a dvd it is loaded with alternate takes and different mixes and live shows we all know what an amazingly gifted musician Prince was, and this only serves to highlight that fact. There is so much fantastic material in here. We got to speak with Bobby Z, and today's episode features him. Bobby Z is one of the original guys that started hanging out with Prince in Minneapolis and playing with him. He was the drummer in the revolution, and he was gracious enough to sit down with us and fill us in on his take on how it all came together. Would you introduce yourself, please? My name is Robert B. Rivkin, professionally known as Bobby Z. Wow, we've got the right person. <laughs> so we are here to talk about the remastered 1999, the iconic Prince release. And we're just going to launch right in. You knew Prince, tell me if my math is right, for 43 years? That's correct. Very wow. good. So I want you to tell me about the Minneapolis music scene and what things were like when you were driving manager Owen Husney. Do you remember that first meeting? I do, but it was uh, actually at Moon Sound. So I had kind of a um, daily double. I was a studio drummer for Chris Moon, who was doing corporate slideshow track music back then. He had one of the first, you know, studios were kind of, high-end, high-tech places that musicians just didn't lounge in, if you remember. You know, you can think of the Beatles sessions where the engineers wore lab coats. I mean, it was a serious business recording. Chris Moon had kind of one of those one-inch, eight-track Tascams that were showing up on the market, built like, you know, shag carpeting, and it was a place to hang out and be a musician. I made a deal with him and a band I was working with that we would uh, kind of paint the back studio for rehearsal time. That took a few days, and on the last day I was walking out, and I walked by Studio A, and the door was open, and I took a peek in and uh, saw the fro. And then he hit play, and then I just heard this glorious sound, which we now know as the vocals for Baby. I sat down and, you know, kind of right next to him, and he thought, you know, he reacted like I was Dracula and, um, you know, just typical Prince. (laughs) 
And but I won him over with a few jokes, and you know, then Chris came in and said, "This is Bobby. This is Prince." And then we kind of instantly bonded. And then he said, "Can you punch me in?" And I said, "Sure." So he went out to the drum kit, and I hit record. He recorded a drum track, stops and starts, and I'm looking at Chris, going, "What's going on?" And Chris is just, "Just wait, just wait." And then he comes in, puts on you know guitar, puts on a track, puts on a bass. Then he does the one thing that forever was etched in my mind, where he takes his right hand on the keyboard, left hand on the guitar sustain, and then sings the same run on all three halves of his brain. Crazy. And that was it. And I was just like, okay. So I went to work the next day for Owen, who was now part of my, you got to go back to my brother David and Owen and Soma Records in Minneapolis. So the Minneapolis scene had a very fertile vinyl past. Musicland, you know, Minneapolis Mafia, Target, Musicland, Best Buy. You know, it's... it's it started with Pickwick and, and uh, Heiliger's that, you know, distributed vinyl records in the 60s. And then there was a label called Soma, Amos Heiliger, uh, Soma's Amos Backwards. And so there was a fertile ground that my brother David and Owen Husney were putting out regional records and having hits. So these guys were kind of looking for some sort of musical messiah. I went to work the next day, and I told Owen, I said, you know, you got to hear this guy. And Chris was kind of at, like, what do I do now moment. So maybe I was the conduit. Next thing I know, my job is to drive Prince around. So he's in my car, and we spent about seven months together in a 1974 Pinto Woody wagon. We were pretty unfamous together, so we, we had a good time then those <laughs> early days. One of the things that you've said multiple times, but I want to go a little deeper is that your friendship extended to you guiding his talent, and one of the words you use is protecting him. Mm. And, and that's really special. His personality is almost just like part of our culture and iconic now, but everybody knows he was so fierce and powerful, but at the same time so vulnerable. And, you know, everybody just kind of takes that for granted then. But there wasn't any fierce and powerful in the beginning. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, the building blocks of just getting there. And I had started really young and he had started really young. And I knew that, you know, there was going to be steps and this, this building blocks. And, and I knew that he was extremely impatient. That's the trait the two of us had together was impatience. And that impatience, I think, was the energy that helped me protect him, if you can follow that formula. By the time I met him, it was just Andre and Prince. So he had distilled that whole North Side thing down, that whole flight time, champagne, you know, Grand Central, whatever that evolved from, he had just chosen Andre. So now here's a, a trio, and we were a trio for a long time. There's actually some amazing recordings as us as a trio. It was a bond I'll never forget. These were my new best friends, and I felt that Culturally, I had to protect them from a very white, very judgmental Minneapolis. You know, if we wanted to go to a movie, I bought the tickets. I didn't want any, you know, there was a couple instances that shocked me from, you know, some racial behavior on restaurants or something. And, and I just was appalled and just fought really hard just to make sure their lives were uh, effortless. And I brought Matt Fink along and I didn't know, you know, I brought him in at the last 11th hour. You know, again, I wanted to make sure everybody was going to get along. 
So a kind of a co-founder of, of the revolution, if you will. Tell me how to catch and hold a woman Before she told me about the birds and bees She said, baby, money don't grow on Money don't, money don't, money don't grow on trees Money don't, money don't grow on trees Girl, darling Money don't, money don't grow on trees So you, you've talked about the fact that the revolution was envisioned as kind of a, I'm using the word Petri dish, containing the Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, and a little Rick James in the mix. So this is, from the start, this had not only the potential to be, you know, incredible, but that's that's quite the stew that you started with there. It was a Petri dish, but it was also often changed, you know, the formulas for what was in the Petri dish. You got to understand that the guy had hundreds of years of musical talent, not just our rock and roll short period since Sinatra, since 48. We're talking about, you know, Paganini and uh, Mozart and... uh, Shakespeare and uh, Da Vinci, you know, it, you know, we're talking about that kind of talent. I know it's hard for people to really put their head around that, but that's why we're doing this today. That's why you're talking to me because it was that that kind of talent. <laughs> you know, they they'd walk in on Da Vinci and he'd be writing a letter with one hand and and painting with the left. I mean, that's why you still talk about Da Vinci. Prince's abilities on a daily basis were astounding. You know, people talk about the Super Bowl all the time. You know, that that was just a Tuesday. That's just <laughs> what he did. You know, you know. I mean, it, it it it's really important to kind of think about that for a minute. I mean, you know, as a musician, I mean, all of those concerts, all of those rehearsals. I don't think I ever really heard him go flat or sharp. Teacher, teacher. from you personally and this is a great intro into the new 1999 rhino remaster so Mm -hmm. can you please tell us the free hbo hotel story (laughs) yeah so we've toured and we're just about ready to join rick's tour so we've done these warm-up tours and we're you know there's kind of a lot of anticipation we're in the south he had his own bus and this is the first time each of us had our own rooms. Otherwise, Matt was my roommate and Desmond Andre were roommates. And I think, you know, Gail got a room room for obvious reasons. But as we pulled up to the motel, it said free HBO. It was a motel. Free HBO. That got everybody going, you know, because cable was kind of a buzz, but nobody had it. And to have cable was, you know, was exciting. And so everybody got in the room and, of course, turned the TV on, you know, boom. The show that was on was the, the Man Who Saw Tomorrow, with Orson Welles narrating. It was the story of Nostradamus and the quatrains. And the payoff of the show was, you know, that the, the quatrains pointed to 1999, at the end of the world, the, the big 
blow-up of all the nuclear war that predicted was 1999. It was fun, you know, to watch, and we, you know, got a little fear, a little, you know, it created a lot of emotion. And so the next day, you know, you, you get in the van, you go to Bahur, Prince is already at the venue, of course. So you have that water cooler moment where, you, you know, did, did you see that show? I mean, I couldn't wait to ask Prince if he saw that show, you know, because we that was right in his wheelhouse, you know, about all this prophecy. And, you know, we were always talking about, you know, all this crazy, weird stuff that kids do. You know, I mean, that we're all fascinated by the, the, the weirder side of life when you're 19, 20. And, he, you know, this is typical that he had a song written. He had the lyrics done. He could take all that emotion off the screen and all that stuff we were talking about and he wrote a song. That happened often that he could transfer information that quickly. But this was astounding that it was 1999 and that the lyrics were really reflective of, you know, uh, oops, out of time. That's a direct impact from this Nostradamus thing. said that with 1999, Prince figured out who his audience was, Corvette for the rock people, 1999 for the party people. But my question is, how much did he really, I don't want to say the word care, but, you know, given he always surprised his audience, I mean, he wasn't really a marketing research guy, but he somehow seemed to to hit it on the mark. And, and that much strategy to really say, this is for the rock people, this is for the party people. I mean, wow, that's that's Well, I mean, of. you have to put it in historical perspective. I mean, the, the waning days of disco were happening. Disco was despised by rock. And, you know, there was kind of a war. They were burning disco records, literally. In Chicago, Uh, yes. It was, you know, there was some strange stuff going on uh, with musical culture at that moment. So when, when I said, you know, this is for the rock people, this is for the party people, Little Red Corvette was, you know, this is for MTV. And, and also to show right. off that, you know, his choreography, that, you know, the dance in the middle, to show off this wasn't your normal kind of guy doing the splits and flipping around and stuff. This was going to be something to buy a ticket and go see. He knew that, you know, he if he made that video and all of a sudden he's in this shiny purple trench coat, which was transformative. And then, you know, now he's doing Prince acrobatics like no one's ever done. I mean, he's he's out doing James Brown. I mean, he's splitting, he's dancing, you know, he's jumping. I mean, it's just, it's insane, right? So, so he mixed a rock song with performance. With 1999, the word party was a disco word. It's almost kind of risky at that moment in time, but he knows he's grabbing, you know, his entire R&B audience. But if you read the lyric or listen to it, he, he says, party, that's right, party, which means that he's, he's saying it. I'm saying it, you know, and he's taking it. And at that historical moment in time, that, that just kind of grabbed the decimated world of disco, and he, he took it. And, you know, he took it right then. And, you know, I thought it was a brilliant lyrical move. 
even then. Well, and he brought the, he brought the funk to disco. I mean, he he didn't just have 124 BPMs with a beat. I mean, he added the swing, he added the funk, and yet that is still like the 1990. Both of those tracks well, it, it was, are he killer was, dance he was, tracks. He, yeah, but he was he was never disco. I mean. At the end of, you know, I Want to Be Your Lover, there's that jam, and there's a few things that do yep. two, four, roll on the hi-hat kind of disco thing. But you're right. I mean, he, you know, Earth, Wind, and Fire had come and kind of taken over the landscape. So he was freed up to do funk. He knew where the audience was at all the way. When you're saying he always had a surprise, you know, I mean, he just kind of knew the pulse of how to read it. You know, after the Rolling Stones debacle is when 1999 was forged, you know. So yes. he had all this newfound courage Bobby would you say that the event that happened when he got booed off the stage in November 81 at the Stone Show at the LA Coliseum did that actually end up turning into a catalyst for him? Sure, it didn't feel like it at the time. It felt like, you know, incoming, torpedoes. Now you got to go back to the Pinto and all this stuff and all this buildup and all these dreams that, you know, we've gotten all, you know, I was so grateful now that I, that I was in the drummer chair. He took me, now I'm on board. Now I'm on board the spaceship going to Jupiter. Yeah. And, and now, you know, we have this, you know, asteroid belt come and you know pelt us with rocks and chicken parts as des remembers raw chicken bags and paper cups and you know a jack daniels bottle missed his head by a quarter of an inch and it crashed against the drum riser i i felt like i was a goalie my symbols were like you know uh you know a goalie protecting me from the shrapnel uh it was devastating i didn't know what what he would do there was a moment when i is this it or you know how do we you know recover from this he dug deep he just dug deep and, you know, his confidence level in himself, which was never an issue from Moon Sound on. It was the persona that he now perfected. Often in 1999, would he go in and just do the songs himself versus using the members of the band? Would you ever try to track live as a band together, or were things put together by overdubbing? You know, all of the above. Depending on the song, some songs he'd work out with the band. Some songs he'd record by himself and then work out with the band and then record the band. Some songs he'd do by himself and have individuals come in, have Lisa put apart. You know, I came in and we really experimenting, obviously, the, the Lynn LM1. You know, when the Lynn started playing in rehearsal, um, his manager, Steve Farnoli, was there. And I kind of went up to Farnoli and I felt like, you know, like automation was putting drummers out of business. I spoke for all drummers for all time that this machine now was evil and uh, it was going to ruin us. And, you know, I'm sure throughout history there's been, the you know, people complaining about machines and and Steve gave me the best advice I ever had. He goes, well, 
it's here now, so why don't you learn how to use it? And I did. And, and then we had the most exciting thing was the Pearl Syncussions, which are a huge part of the Prince sound. People don't really focus on those because they focus on the Lin. But the Pearl Syncussions were drum synthesizers that created the boom, shh, in Little Red Corvette and the bombs of 1999 and Sexuality's Tom sound and all of this incredible percussive electronic meets tom-tom sound and uh, cymbal sounds, all these different aspects of the synthesized sound. So we were screwing around with that a lot. That was fun. So we put on some stuff on Corvette, and that's when I started to hear the stuff. He, the first thing he played me after the Stones thing was Let's Pretend We're Married, which, you know, I was just like, wow, you know, he's just, now that's the Minneapolis sound. He just, you know, he did it on Let's Work, earlier with the horn synths, but the horn synths on Let's Pretend We're Married, he arrived. That was the goal. There's there's the revolution in a nutshell. It's it's a funky horn band with synthesizers. Let's said multiple times that these songs were a puzzle and really challenging to play. So can you give me one instance of that from, from one of the tracks that maybe people wouldn't, wouldn't realize because they just say, oh, well, it's, it's this. Yeah, I'll give you the best example is the probably the simplest example. It's not difficult, some of them to play, but to play them correctly is another story. And you know, Little Red Corvette, when you take out the Pearl Concussion fill that I'm talking about, which is, you know, it's just bump, got, bump, bump, got, bump, bump, got, bump. And if you add the other part, of course, it's bump, got, bump, bump, got, bump, but just the simplicity of the spaces and what he leaves out is the key to a lot of these patterns and keyboard parts and guitar parts. was also, just to be a little controversial, was also the beginning of a long and interesting relationship with the label. How much of that kind of made it to, to the rest of the band that, you know, he always wanted to try new things and he was always impatient to do so? Well, I had known that from For You. He was not somebody to be contained. I mean, I couldn't believe it when he even signed the first deal that he could actually do that. You know, there was always this free spirit I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I, I don't want to be molded this way or that way. 
It was always that kind of pioneering spirit. You know, we had discussions often about what happened in the 30s, you know, where they could release an album every six months or Motown could release an album every year or, you know, it was just, eventually it was just an overload of content because it was so prolific. 1999 is a double album, pretty big deal back then. He always had a musician's artist point of view on all this stuff versus the business kind of thing. But then again, he was one of the smartest business executives. You know, he sold the first guy to sell 100,000 albums online. And he, he pulled that thing with the Daily Mail and got, you know, his album number one in <laughs> Billboard. And, you know, he, he was so innovative at the same time. So he understood both sides of it. He just wanted the artist to be in control of that, which we know that that's just not the way the business was set up in, you know, 1490 or whenever music started playing for the king or whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about a few tracks, and I'm going to go right here with with a little bit of rockabilly, and I'm going to lead you into the fact that you actually used to do How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Yes, we did. And the Flintstones wow. theme, and the Munsters, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, Doggy was a transition from, from track to track, so, he, you know, it was, it was his way of just, you know, of having some fun between songs, you know? Yeah, but that fun, here comes here comes Delirious. Again, that's got such a rockabilly edge with, again, it's like funkabilly. That's what I'm saying. So from the very beginning, the versatility, going back to the versatility, is what appealed to me. All of a sudden, he's doing this, like, Bambi, and then he's doing Baby, you know? So, I mean, it was just so versatile. In, in songwriting, it was just so versatile that you had to play all these different styles, and you never knew where rhythmically it was going to go because he just seemed to have limitless ability to do a funk song or a ballad or an orchestral piece or, you know, a super funky, super fast rock song like Sister off Dirty Mind. I mean, you know, there was just no no limits. No boundaries. Yeah, no limits, no boundaries. Yeah. I get So there are, I believe, 35 tracks in some way, shape, or form that have not seen the light of day. And I just have a feeling that Prince, you know, all these tracks that we haven't heard, even though they weren't necessarily, you know, 100% finished, he was obviously deeply involved in every nuance of all of these things that we've never heard before. Before we'd run the set at rehearsal, we would run a whole other show, a set of whole other songs. We would run it almost every other day to warm up for the set. Around the World in the Day was in the can before we hit Detroit for the Purple Rain Tour. 1999, 
you know, is in the can basically before the controversy tour. This kind of never-ending recording. So let's let's do a math problem. Forty-three years. Go back to the forty-three years. So I met him in seventy-seven. Is you know forty-three years. Let's just say he wrote a song a day for the sake of it. It could be more between photo session and video shoots, and you know, but recording a song a day. 365 times 43, you know, gives you a number and into the, you know, 14,000s. You know, is there that many songs? There could be. <laughs> there, there really could be, you know, tens, Holy you know. moly. Yeah, 10,000 songs or more, you know, by the time they, they're done wow. digging through all of it and find every little scrap of melody and composition, you know, it, it it's... Like I said, I go back to what it is. It's it's astounding. This is not this is not normal. You know, maybe only Lennon and McCartney can be equaled with the quality and the amount of songs that were put out in a period of time. You think it's special? Well, so do I. Why special? Will it make me cry? It does not And these two live shows that are on the set, live at Masonic Hall in Detroit and then live at the Summit in Houston. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the tracks on my screen here. You know, keyboard interlude, piano improvisation. I mean, so these live shows, tell me a little bit about, because obviously there's a, quote, set list. But then when I read you know, keyboard interlude and, you know, improvisation. I've seen the video and, you know, it, it. he goes off stage and after, you know, a costume change is probably a costume change or um, in some cases before International Lover, the, the bed has to be uh, put on the elevator in the back. You know, it was a very sophisticated stage by Roy Bennett at that time uh, with the blinds an elevator in the back, which, you know, in Purple Rain, they put the elevator in the, right in the middle of the stage. Um, they moved wow. it to bring them up on Let's Go Crazy. So the, there was all kinds of things that needed to be done, which needed to take a few minutes or, you know, a minute or two. And so Lisa did some keyboard improvisations that she could, you know, it's still the same amount of time roughly, you know, but she was free to kind of roam. And, you know, we still do that when we play now. It's like, you know, Lisa's... Someone you you want to just kind of you know let go on a keyboard because it's it's always amazing and entertaining. So it's it's he trusted her to just kind of cover you know the stage change or the costume change. You can rehearse so much, which, you know, one thing I was very grateful for is that the discipline of rehearsal, his MO, the ability to be prepared for anything on stage was very comforting when you're in front of 20, 80,000 people. That's all you have. It's, I consider it like um, 
if you're in the Olympics as a gymnast, you know, all you have is your routine. You're just trying to do it perfect. His discipline was transferred, you know, to the stage and it, it was key. So as we kind of made these steps, you know, from a rough band, you know, we played Bogarts in Cincinnati and some songs would get applause and some songs, there'd be pauses. And sometimes you had to set the synthesizers or change settings. And he's not one to talk to the audience, as we know. He's not one to interact, you know, like, you know, very much at all. And so he learned to patchwork the music of the show to kind of transition it as opposed to, how's everybody doing tonight? You know, that it just wasn't that kind of entertaining. You need to get into the to the tracks you've never heard because it just shows you like purple music and some of this stuff we used to jam to all the time and 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 that you know that brings back rehearsal to me and but just the delivery of that vocals you know it, you know is worth it alone <laughs> just to hear him just kind of play with you uh, with a microphone he's playing with people with a microphone and a guitar and a keyboard you know he I I used to think that he he's kind of like he was just playing with all of us because he just had this kind of this musical knowledge and this lyrical knowledge that you know could kind of transfer all of our thoughts and and our pleasures and and things into words and music. And you know, this album, you know, nineteen ninety nine is the album to really. If you're gonna if you if you haven't heard Prince and you you know you and you really haven't you know you need to get up to speed you know start here because. This is this is the Renaissance. Then go backwards, and you can see obviously "Dirty Mind" and and then the second album, and obviously the first. But you know, 1999 is is when he figured it out, and um, it's all there for everybody to hear and see. You know, the video just shows you that he was really now climbing the speakers and really becoming this rock star, this this really powerful entertainer. Music is math, he used to say. That's where he got me, is music is math. And he could, you know, he was doing trigonometry. What do you think we can take away today from 1999, now that we've made it alive 20 years later? I mean, how do we party like it's 2019? The thing that's amazing to me is the iconic nature of just that phrase now, party like it's... Yes. I mean... You can hear it from the capital in D.C. to everywhere around the globe. It's iconic part of the world's culture. I think that that is the biggest takeaway from this reissue is that that phrase, 
you know, belongs to him. And it just shows you how deep and how powerful that song went, that album went to people. And he meant to people that if Prince wants to party like it's whatever year you want to party, I you know, if it's your birthday, you party like it's your birthday. You know, if you, you want to party like it's 2020, 2019, here comes 2020, you know, he lived it up, man. He lived it up. And he took each day and he could take each room or each moment he was in and make it special. And I think that that's the lesson to be learned here is there's no regrets. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any regrets. I think he, he lived more fully than anyone I've ever witnessed. And his full embrace of every moment and everything in his surroundings and how it was kind of manipulated into his world makes us all kind of smile inside. I think there's just something about Prince that just kind of makes us all, when those monuments of the world lit up after his passing, you'll never see anything like that again. You'll never, the world will never see anything like that. To be recognized at the Sphinx of Egypt, the Eiffel Tower, the Opera House in, you know, in, in, in Australia, you know, it all lit up in purple, you know, I mean, that's a king. That's a king. Incredible. Bobby, thank you so much for taking the time. This this is to use a term, this is this has been revolutionary for me. Thank you so much for joining us. You know what? I just want to say to to the fans that it, it's really heartwarming for that kid in a pinto to know that not that I was right, but that everybody got to share it and see it. I'm really grateful that he got what he wanted and delivered this music to the world. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. Bobby Z, I mean, seriously, the guy was there from the beginning and enough stories for days, probably as many stories as there are Prince songs out there in the vault. And thank God they didn't get rear-ended driving around in that Pinto. Yeah, I know, I know. I, 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 now I want a Pinto Woody, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't either, to tell the truth. That was part one of two parts and next episode, we're going to be talking to the one and only Des Dickerson from The Revolution, who puts an entirely different spin on the story of how he got associated with Prince and was involved in 1999. Looking forward to it. We'll see you then. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.